chapter one of rousseau and education according to nature by thomas davidson this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter one ideas and aspirations current in rousseau's time authority nature and culture questo modo di retro parce ugida pur lo winco d'amor che fa natura per l'altro modo quel amor soblia che fa natura e quel che poi aguento dice la feda spezil si cria dante inferno eleven fifty five fifty six sixty one to sixty three if true human greatness consists in deep insight strong and well-distributed affection and free beneficent will rousseau was not in any sense a great man his insight like his knowledge was limited and superficial his affections were capricious and undisciplined and his will was ungenerous and selfish his importance in literature and history is due to the fact that he summed up in his character expressed in his writings and exemplified in his experience a group of tendencies and aspirations which had for some time been half blindly stirring in the bosom of society and which in him attained to complete consciousness and manifestation for the first time footnote rousseau has been undeservedly blamed for feeling and expressing this in the opening of his confessions he says i feel my heart and i know men i am not made like any that i have seen and i venture to think that i am not made like any that exist if i am not better i am at least different whether nature did well or ill in breaking the mould in which she cast me no one can tell till after he has read me the truth is rousseau was the first of a new type of which there are plenty of specimens in our day the type of the subjective sensuous sentimental dalliant querulous individualist nature by no means broke the mould see morley rousseau volume two pages three o four subsequent in the footnote these tendencies and aspirations which may be comprehended under the one term individualism or more strictly subjective individualism have a history and this we must now sketch if we are to understand the significance of our author modern individualism is a reaction against the extreme socialism of the middle age the ruling principle of that age was authority conceived as derived from a supreme being of infinite power invested in the heads of two institutions church and empire or more frequently in that of the church alone according to the views then prevalent the individual was neither his own origin nor his own end he was created by god for god's glory and was merely a means to that he had therefore of course no freedom whether of thought affection or will free inquiry into the laws and nature of reality gave way to a timid discussion of the meaning of authority 
the natural affections were but grudgingly admitted to a place in life and even as late as the council of trent in the sixteenth century an anathema was pronounced upon any one who should say that the state of virginity and celibacy was not better than the state of matrimony above all free self-determination of the will possible only through free inquiry and free affection was placed under the ban the task of the centuries since the close of the middle age has been gradually to shake off this yoke and to restore men to freedom that is to convince them that they are ends in and through themselves the first notable manifestations footnote we can trace the tendency itself back to abelard ten seventy nine to eleven forty two and even further End of, footnote. of this tendency were the germanic reformation and the italian renaissance both belonging to the sixteenth century the former claimed freedom for the individual intelligence the latter freedom for the individual feelings and emotions neither of them thought of aspiring to freedom of the moral will which is the only true freedom this is a fact of most importance in enabling us to comprehend the thought and practice of the sixteenth seventeenth and eighteenth centuries we look vainly in these for the conception of moral freedom footnote in goethe's great drama faust who stands for the complete movement toward individualism and who discovers its nature and limitations takes his stand upon the will allein ich will he says in defiance of all mephistopheles's suggestions in the footnote what the absence of this meant we can perhaps most clearly see when we realize that the complete logical outcome of the reformation was voltaire that of the renaissance rousseau it takes the clear mathematical mind of the french to carry principles to their logical conclusions in thought and practice what rousseau demands is absolutely free play for the feelings and emotions but it took a long time for any one to become clearly aware that this was the true meaning of the renaissance in trying to escape from authority the men of the reformation appealed to reason those of the renaissance to nature and the causes of this are obvious reason can find justification only in reason feeling emotion as claiming to be guiding principles must look for theirs in nature accordingly while among the reformers reason played the chief part and in the end gave rise to speculative philosophy among the humanists nature received an homage which finally developed into physical science the notion of nature was an inheritance from the greeks chiefly it should seem through plato indeed the distinction between nature and convention or law is fundamental in greek thinking which may be said to have originated in an attempt to find in nature regarded as unerring because necessitated a sure refuge from the manifold forms of capricious seeming conventions already 
in the minds of the greeks this distinction involves that dualism between the material and the spiritual which pervades almost their entire philosophy and constitutes its chief defect accepting without analysis the ordinary common-sense view of the world which regards material things as entirely independent of thought and governed by laws more rigid and reliable than it can claim they were fain like many equally unschooled scientists of the present day to adopt these laws as the norm for human action in a word to naturalize spirit continuing to think however they were finally surprised to discover that nature itself was purely conventional that is subject to the laws of spirit and therefore incapable of furnishing a court of appeal from these this was the work of the sophists who by their open scepticism made it very clear that if there was any inexorable law it must be sought elsewhere than in nature socrates wisely sought it in the unity and completeness of thought but his work was undone by his pupil plato who sought it in a world of ideas of his own invention a world having no necessary connection with either matter or mind from this time on nature and gradually mind or reason also fell into disrepute and the supreme object of interest became plato's fantastic creation the so-called ideal world this tendency along with many other things in greek philosophy passed over into christianity and reached its culmination in the middle age when nature and reason were both equally regarded with suspicion or even contempt as the origin of evil and the place of plato's ideal world was taken by an authoritative revelation as we have seen the reformation undertook to rehabilitate reason and the renaissance nature they did so without attempting to overcome their opposition or generally speaking to reject revelation at least openly thus it came to pass that the thinkers of the seventeenth century found in their inheritance from the past three unreconciled conceptions or groups of conceptions whose opposing claims they were in no position to settle footnote most of the thought of the western world for the last three hundred years has been devoted to effecting this settlement thus far with very indifferent success End of footnote. nature reason revelation as might have been expected some declared for one some for another generally speaking churchmen and their friends clung to revelation and authority while other thinkers tried to make peace between reason and nature in general the english mind showed a preference for nature and tried to explain reason through it while the french mind setting out with reason could find no way of arriving at nature and so left the dualism unsolved bacon hobbes and locke form a strong contrast to pascal descartes and malebranche rousseau generally follows the former and especially hobbes hobbes conceived the human race as setting out on its career in a state of nature which to him meant a state of universal war resulting in a life solitary poor brutish nasty and short at the same time he regarded nature as the art whereby god hath made 
and governs the world getting over the paradox herein involved by maintaining that nature is by the art of man imitated that it can make an artificial animal in other words that art is an extension of nature footnote shakespeare's winter's tale act four scene three yet nature is made better by no mean but nature makes that mean so over that art which you say adds to nature is an art that nature makes this is an art which doesn't mend nature change it rather but the art itself is nature End of footnote nature according to hobbes has made men so equal in faculties of the body and mind as that though there be found one man sometimes manifestly stronger in body or of quicker mind than another yet when all is reckoned together the difference between man and man is not so considerable as that one man can thereupon claim to himself any benefit to which another may not pretend as well as he and not only are men equal but they have equal rights the right of nature he says which writers commonly call jus natural is the liberty each man hath to use his own power as well as himself for the preservation of his own nature that is to say of his own life and consequently of doing anything which in his own judgment and reason he shall conceive to be the aptest means thereto by liberty is understood according to the proper signification of the word the absence of external impediments a law of nature lex naturalis is a precept or general rule found out by reason by which a man is forbidden to do that which is destructive of his life or taketh away the means of preserving the same and to omit that by which he thinketh it may best be preserved in this condition of war of every one against every one every one is governed by his own reason and every man has a right to everything even to another's body and therefore as long as the natural right of every man to everything endureth there can be no security to any man and consequently it is a precept or general rule of reason that every man ought to endeavour peace as far as he has hope of obtaining it and when he cannot obtain it that he may seek and use all helps and advantages of war the first branch of which rule containeth the first fundamental law of nature which is to seek peace and follow it the second the sum of the right of nature which is by all means we can to defend ourselves from this fundamental law of nature by which men are commanded to endeavour peace is derived this second law that a man be willing when others are so too as far forth as for peace and defence of himself he shall think it necessary to lay down this right to all things and be contented with so much liberty against other men as he would allow other men against himself the mutual transferring of right is that which men call contract from the law of nature by which we are obliged to transfer to another such rights as being retained hinder the peace of mankind there followeth a third which is in this that men perform their covenants made in this law of nature consisteth the fountain and original of justice 
when a covenant is made then to break it is unjust and the definition of injustice is no other than the non-performance of covenant and whatsoever is not unjust is just the agreement of men is by covenant only which is artificial and therefore it is no wonder if there be somewhat else required besides covenant to make their agreement constant and lasting which is a common power to keep them in awe and to direct their actions to a common benefit the only way to erect such a common power is to confer all their power and strength upon one man or upon one assembly of men that may reduce all their wills by plurality of voices unto one will which is as much as to say to appoint one man or assembly of men to bear their person and every one to own and to acknowledge himself to be author of whatsoever he that so beareth their person shall act or cause to be acted in those things which concern the common peace and safety and therein to submit their wills every one to his will and their judgments to his judgment this is more than consent or concord it is a real unity of them all in one and the same person made by covenant of every man with every man he that carrieth this person is called sovereign and said to have sovereign power and every one besides his subject the attaining of this sovereign power is by two ways one is by natural force the other is when men agree amongst themselves to submit to some man or assembly of men voluntarily on confidence to be protected by him against all others the latter may be called a political commonwealth or commonwealth by institution and the former a commonwealth by acquisition a commonwealth is said to be instituted when a multitude of men do agree and covenant and every one with every one that to whatsoever man or assembly of men shall be given by the major part the right to present the person of all of them that is to say to be their representative every one as well he that voted for it as he that voted against it shall authorize all the actions and judgments of that man or assembly of men in the same manner as if they were his own to the end to live peaceably among themselves and be protected against other men from this institution of a commonwealth are derived all the rights and faculties of him or them to whom sovereign power is conferred by the consent of the people assembled hobbes now goes on to say that the compact thus once made can never be either replaced or annulled that it is binding on all that the sovereign once elected can do no injustice and hence cannot be put to death or otherwise punished by his subjects that he has the right to prescribe or proscribe opinion to determine the laws of property to decide all controversies to make war and peace to choose all officials to reward with riches or honour and to punish with corporal or pecuniary punishment or with ignominy every subject and to confer titles of honour though theoretically speaking the sovereign may be either a monarch an aristocracy or a democracy yet hobbes for various reasons assigned advocates the first but in any case as soon as the sovereign is in power the liberty of a subject lieth only in those things which in regulating their actions the sovereign hath pretermitted this is the less to be regretted that liberty or freedom signifieth properly the absence of opposition by opposition i mean external impediments and may be applied no less to irrational and inanimate creatures than to rational footnote this confusion of ideas was inherited by rousseau End of footnote. 
indeed liberty and necessity are consistent as the water that hath not only liberty but a necessity of descending by the channel so likewise in the actions that men voluntarily do which because they proceed from their will proceed from liberty and yet because every act of man's will and every desire and inclination proceedeth from some cause and that from another cause in a continual chain whose first link is in the hand of god the first of causes proceed from necessity and did not his will assure the necessity of man's will the liberty of men would be a contradiction and impediment to the omnipotence and liberty of god hobbes views with regard to law are characteristic the law of nature he says and the civil law contain each other for the laws of nature which consist in equity justice gratitude and other moral virtues on these depending in the condition of mere nature are not properly laws but qualities that dispose men to peace and obedience when a commonwealth is once settled they are actually laws and not before the law of nature therefore is a part of the civil law reciprocally also the civil law is a part of the dictates of nature for justice that is to say performance of covenant and giving to every one his own is a dictate of the law of nature civil and natural law are not different kinds but different parts of law whereof one part being written is called civil the other unwritten natural we have made these long quotations from hobbes because he may be regarded as the father of that system of ideas which found their complete expression in rousseau looking back on them let us consider one what he borrowed from previous thought two what he altered or added and three what he arrived at one he borrowed from greek thought the notions of nature and convention or law of necessity and freedom and of hypostatic unity from latin thought the notions of person and natural law from mediaeval theology the notions of god's omnipotence and man's consequent dependence and unfreedom and from the judicious hooker apparently the notion of a social contract to he identified convention with nature by making the former a mere conscious that is rational expression of the latter footnote here we have the germ of hegel's objective and subjective reason and indeed of modern idealism generally end of footnote and freedom with necessity by calling that which proceeds from a necessitated will voluntary and therefore free he assumed that men lived originally in a state of nature which was at once a state of freedom and a state of universal warfare and that they passed out of that into a civic condition by a social contract resulting in the creation of a new hypostatic person of which all individuals thenceforth became mere organs this new person he maintained had no real liberty of its own but being a product of nature was a mere implement in the hands of god for his own ends thus three in his attempt to correlate revelation nature and reason or convention hobbes arrived at the notion of a state or commonwealth as a mere automaton whose motive force was externally communicated through its head a notion which underlies many forms of theistic religion for example islam and calvinism 
and finds its most complete realization in the turkish and russian empires of to-day it is due to a mere shuffling and combining of old unanalyzed concepts such as those above enumerated in a mind essentially servile but though hobbes was the avowed champion of moral determinism and political despotism he unwittingly paved the way for freedom by admitting that all sovereign or despotic rights were derived from a primitive convention his readers forgot that this convention was at bottom due to nature and god and fixed their attention upon men as the source of civic rights so true was this that even charles the second hobbes pupil was highly offended at what seemed a denial of the divine right of kings to maintain this right sir robert filmer wrote his patriarcha which tried to show that all sovereign rights were derived from the sovereignty of the world originally conceded by god to adam and had descended in a direct line from him hence that all primitive equality among men and all occasion for a social contract were impossible princes are born princes the rest of mankind subjects or thralls against this plea for royal absolutism and popular enslavement locke raised his voice and published in sixteen eighty nine just after the revolution which expelled james the second his two treatises on government in the former of these he refuted with needless gravity the flimsy arguments of filmer and in the latter undertook to show what were the true origins of civil government defining political power as a right of making laws with penalties of death and consequently all less penalties for the regulating and preserving of property and of employing the force of the community in the execution of such laws and in the defence of the commonwealth from foreign injury and all this only for the public good he proceeded to consider how such power could rise in dealing with this question he made the two fundamental assumptions of hooker and hobbes one that mankind started on its career in a state of nature in which all individuals enjoyed complete liberty and equality two that the transition from this to the civic state was through a social contract but he sided with hooker against hobbes in maintaining that the state of nature was not a state of war but one of peace governed by a natural law the state of nature he says has a law of nature to govern it which obliges every one and reason which is that law teaches all mankind who will but consult it that being all equal and independent no one ought to harm another in his life health liberty or possessions for men being all the workmanship of one omnipotent and infinitely wise maker all the servants of one sovereign master sent into the world by his order and about his business they are his property whose workmanship they are made to last during his not one another's pleasure here we have to observe two things one that as in hobbes reason is identified with the law of nature two that man is still conceived as being a mere instrument in the hands of a higher power at the same time locke does not on that account deprive him of either moral or political liberty or submit him irrevocably to the tender mercies of a despot he says to this strange doctrine viz that in the state of nature every one has the executive power of the law of nature 
i doubt not but it will be objected that it is unreasonable for men to be judges in their own cases and that therefore god hath certainly appointed government to restrain the partiality and violence of men i easily grant that civil government is the proper remedy for the inconveniences of the state of nature which must certainly be great when men may be judges in their own cases but i desire those who make this objection to remember that absolute monarchs are but men and if government is to be the remedy of those evils which necessarily follow from men being judges in their own cases and the state of nature is therefore not to be endured i desire to know what kind of government that is and how much better it is than the state of nature where one man commanding a multitude has the liberty to be judge in his own case and may do to all his subjects whatever he pleases without the least question or control of those who execute his pleasure and in whatsoever he doth whether led by reason mistake or passion must be submitted to which men in the state of nature are not bound to do to one another locke not only rejects hobbes theory of despotic sovereignty but he stoutly maintains that men by submitting to common laws do not lose but gain freedom he says however it may be mistaken the end of law is not to abolish or restrain but to preserve and enlarge freedom where there is no law there is no freedom for who could be free when every other man's humour might domineer over him he holds that all property is rightfully due to labour and all inequality of possession wrongfully to the introduction of money the origin of civil society is thus described whenever any number of men so unite into one society as to quit every one his executive power of the law of nature and to resign it to the public there and there only is a political or civil society and this is done wherever any number of men in the state of nature enter into society to make one people one body politic under one supreme government or else when he joins himself to and incorporates with any government already made and locke agrees with aristotle in holding that men unite in this way because man is by nature a political animal god he says having made man such a creature that in his own judgment it was not good for him to be alone put him under strong obligations of necessity convenience and inclination to drive him into society as well as fitted him with understanding and language to continue and enjoy it and locke firmly believed not only that all civil societies were due to original contracts voluntarily entered into but also that they might be dissolved when that contract was broken distinguishing moreover between society and government which latter he held to be the act of a society already formed he maintained that when a government or form of government failed to perform the functions for which it was instituted society might overthrow it and put another in its place an excuse for the revolution of sixteen eighty eight and for revolutions generally comparing locke with hobbes we find a considerable advance on the part of the former in the direction of liberty men are no longer moral automata they are no longer drawn into a social contract by mere selfishness but by a beneficent law of their nature the social contract no longer extends to the whole of human life and is no longer irrevocable by such contract men gain and do not lose freedom otherwise the contract is not binding 
divine authority though still freely acknowledged does not prevent men from being the originators and the only lawful originators of their own governments reason is the qualification for free citizenship nevertheless hobbes fundamental fallacies the state of nature and the social contract still remain the two englishmen hobbes and locke were the chief inspirers of rousseau's social and political theories of earlier men whose views tended away from mediaevalism such as marsiglio of padua fourteenth century hooker fifteen fifty three to sixteen hundred machiavelli fourteen sixty nine to fifteen twenty seven bowden fifteen thirty to fifteen ninety six grotius fifteen eighty three to sixteen forty five althusen he knew very little though he mentions some of them among his more immediate predecessors the men that most influenced him were montesquieu sixteen eighty nine to seventeen fifty five and morelli the former in his esprit des lois first published at geneva in seventeen forty eight had dealt with social and political questions in an historic and scientific way inquiring into facts instead of spinning theories out of his own head or heart against this method rousseau who hated research and could not endure continuous study but followed his heart in everything protested with all his might so that many of his theories may be said to come from a reaction against those of montesquieu morelli on the other hand whose code de la nature ou le veritable esprit des lois de tout temps négligé ou méconnu appeared in seventeen fifty four soon after rousseau's second discourse and several years before the social contract must have found in rousseau a strong sympathizer though he combated rousseau's notion that human corruption is due to the arts and sciences and agreed with hobbes locke and montesquieu in holding that man is improved by social culture he was at one with rousseau in maintaining that men in a state of nature are good and not bad that most governments hitherto have rather corrupted them than otherwise and that they have done this by permitting private property and consequent inequality of possession which is the source of all other inequalities and most other evils he accordingly recommended a return to the simplicity and equality of nature by the establishment of a community of goods that is of socialism at the time when rousseau began to write the ideas of hobbes locke montesquieu and morelli and the questions started by them were in the air the chief of these notions were one a state of nature as man's original condition a state conceived sometimes as one of goodness peace freedom equality and happiness sometimes as one of badness war slavery inequality and misery to a law of nature independent of all human enactment and yet binding upon all men three a social contract voluntarily and consciously made as the basis of justification for civil society and authority a contract by which men united for the protection of rights and the enforcement of laws which had existed already in the state of nature four false inequality among men as due to private property or the usurpation by some of what by natural right belonged to all five a peaceful untroubled unenterprising unstruggling existence as the normal form of human life the questions started were chiefly these one was the state of nature one of freedom and peace or of war and slavery two are nature's laws beneficent or the opposite three do men gain or lose freedom through the social contract four are they improved or degraded by social union and culture five 
since all men are free and equal in the state of nature how do social subordination of one man to another and social inequality come about and what is their justification six are men bound to submit to social regulations against their wills in all these notions and questions there are two facts specially deserving of attention one the ever-increasing importance assigned to nature and the ever-growing tendency to identify the divine will with its laws and to regard reason as the expression of these to the growing tendency to look upon man as the originator of laws and the founder of institutions as therefore their master and not their slave it thus appears that in the attempt to reconcile the three concepts of revelation nature and reason regarded as guides to human action the first place came gradually to be assigned to the second and all appeals to be made to it and this fact was fraught with the gravest consequences two of which may be here mentioned one there was the gradual decline of theology and metaphysical speculation with the growth of natural science two there was the tendency to regard human duty as a mere docile following of nature and no longer as a process of abnegation of the natural self in favour of a loftier ideal in nature which thus became the watchword of the time men sought a quiet refuge from the warring subtleties of a theology and a philosophy which had lost contact with life and left it devoid of interest and though for a time they misunderstood nature and committed many enormities in their devotion to her yet it proved in the end that nature never did betray the heart that loved her whatever view we may take of revelation and reason it is certain that it is through the study of nature taken in its widest sense that the truth of them becomes significant and fruitful for us it was while these ideas were fermenting in men's minds that rousseau came upon the scene End of chapter one